podcast world. What's up? Chad Belding back at you. Another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. I'm excited as heck about this one today. Today's episode, again, is brought to you by our friends Lynchburg, Tennessee, the most American company, in my opinion, ever to come into existence. Jack Daniels, enjoy it responsibly, enjoy it safely, never allow underage drinking, but lean on Jack through the quarantine, through the big times, the fun times, the sad times, the breakups. Anything that you can think of, Jack has been there for us. But again, everything in moderation. Jack Daniels, thank you so much for believing in hunting, the American outdoorsman, the provider, the culture that we love to live. Today's guest is a man that enjoys all of that. Plus, he's uh, he's got himself a pretty stout music career going on. Riley, a.k.a. Duckman Green. How are you, brother? Good. How are you, bud? Man, it's good to see you, buddy. I didn't recognize you. I got to be honest. Yeah, man, this is my quarantine incognito stash I got going on now. All right, man, we got to hit off with this real quick, though, because we were talking before the show, and you said uh, that you're down in Florida, you're getting ready to head out on a, a, a deep sea or just offshore fishing excursion. You're chasing food, you're chasing dinner. Now, are you uh, are you experienced in this? Like, do you know your way around a boat? Do you have a captain going with you? Are you the guy that's like always trying to spot something floating that the fish are going to, because I've been, I've been learning a lot about this the last 10 years because I'm addicted to it, man. And I just got a load. I just got loaded up and I don't even know if it's legal for me to say this, Riley, that one of my buddies, he shipped me uh, a whole deal of, uh, he caught a daytime sword, a 270 pound sword that's unreal tasting, sent me mahi and he sent me fresh yellowfin that I just sliced up and ate raw. But is, is yeah. that what you're going after? And, and, and are you the guy that's looking for a float or how experienced are you in the salt water? Uh, you know, I st- my fishing started off, I'm from Jacksonville, Alabama, which is right there by Wise Lake. They call it the crappie capital of the world. And my granddaddy used to crappie fish all the time. And that was, you know, some of the best eating fish to me growing up. Then it was bass fishing, and then it started going down to the coast, and uh, we always had a boat. My dad, probably probably when we couldn't afford a boat, we had a boat growing up, you know, and we would go out fishing down here. And I always enjoyed that spot in the birds. You know, wherever the birds are, that's where the fish are, and we were mostly doing inshore. But, uh, you know, this kind of trip is, uh, well, for one, to get out of the house is a great thing for me right now with everybody kind of being locked down, but to come down here at the beach and brought a few buddies, my dad, my uncle are coming down and we're going to go out on a big 65 foot boat that a buddy of mine owns. And, uh, like I said, do some sight fishing, see if we can spot some birds or something on top, any type of structure. But man, like I said, I, I just enjoy going back and having a fish fry back home and getting everybody together. And that's mahi and, and yellowfin. Some that's the best fish eating fish to me. Oh man, isn't it? I like, I'm so envious of that lifestyle to where you, the, of where y'all live. Cause like Florida, you know, they call it the sportsman's paradise and you ought to, you always think fishing, even though Florida's got some stout Osceola turkey hunting and pig hunting and some deer hunting, gator hunting. I've done it all down there. And I, I just like grow envious of when I hear people like you say that that's what you're getting ready to do, even though I get to do it and I don't get jealous. I get to like, I just kind of like Beavis and Butthead, like, Oh man, like I'm stuck out here and, and I love the mountains. I love being around a mule deer and, but I like being around a mallard duck the most. But if I had anything else to do in life, it would be to be on that ocean. And I, and I mean, I'm not, I'm still throwing up on bad seas, you know, like I'm still like on a five or six, I'll be reeling in and throwing up at the same time. I don't know if you're the same way. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have an immunity to it. I go out there and get a little bit queasy myself, but actually being out on a boat, something I enjoy. I mean, I lived in a town called slap out Alabama in a camper for eight months, a couple of years ago and managed a garage door business and just stayed on the water all day. You know, I, 
I've always had that kind of that desire to be out on on a boat and and coming down here. And of course, the weather's great. And the thing about fishing in the ocean is you you don't never know what you're going to catch. You know, I mean, it's a uh, it's it's a relaxing thing for me. But you know, more than anything, being able to get pops and them down here and go out and just do a little bit of that. I've always said that I think I could have made a living as a deckhand. You know, I always thought that lifestyle would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. And when I'm around them, the deckhands and the captains and, and seeing the talents of, of navigating the waters, the boats, the, the speeds they're at, the way that people can spot sailfish from a tower. I've had my best day ever was 19 sails, which had nothing to do with me. It was the crew I was with. Um, I'd love to introduce you to them if you're ever interested down in Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton area, but they've won the world's I believe four times, maybe three, but I think four. And when you're with them, it's like being around a, uh, like an operating room, man. It's almost like being what you do in life and, and watching the stage take shape and like watching all the roadies and the crew just do this thing to where you're like, man, that's magic, right? You can't do what you do without them. And when you're with these fishermen, you're just like, you got to be kidding me. We just caught 19 sails that you were literally hunting pretty much because you were spotting yeah. them and then going and, and getting the kites out. I don't know if you've ever done that, but dude, it is a freaking yeah. blast, man. Yeah. It's well, you know, blast. I think people don't realize, I mean, like duck hunt, you know, some of those, you go to a, an outfitter and, and, you, and you pull up and, and get a cup of coffee and you go sit down in a blind and hunt and you come back and there's breakfast ready. But to not see what all goes into that, how many hours are spent, you know, planting and building blinds and cleaning up, and brushing blinds and putting decoys out, and mojos, and you know, it's the same thing with deep sea fishing. Those guys spend hours washing the salt water off a boat when they get back, you know. Yeah. And, and those deckhands, I mean, it's it's a it's pretty amazing to watch them how much skill there actually is in that and finding those fish because it's just like any other kind of hunting. A little bit of a temperature change in the water and those fish are however many miles in another direction, yeah. you know. It's crazy to see how good they are at it. And it's like the whole, like what you're saying, Riley, the whole experience of like, of getting ingrained in a lifestyle of waking up in the morning, having a little coffee, getting on a paddleboard and going to find these bait, these kids in the intercoastal now are selling bait fish off of paddleboards. And you could either pull your boat up or you could paddle out there and meet them and, gra- and, and pay them for their bait fish. Or you can go bait fish yourself, which is a, a blast in itself when you're throwing nets. And then the whole part about being able, like there's restaurants intercoastal down by Boca Raton or Lighthouse, Fort Lauderdale. And I know you've been down there. You can like take your day, you can take some of your mahi into some of these restaurants and they'll throw down for you right there. They'll cook it for you, yeah. 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 And dude, by we, the time you get back to your house, you just literally experience this day in a life of like, did that really just happen? And these guys, like my guy, Brett Cannon down there are doing it every day. And I'm like, nuts. you lucky bastards, man. What in the heck? Well, what I can't get over is, is how much it takes out of me to be out on a boat fishing like that all day in the sun just drains me. I can sleep for two days after that. And those guys get up in the morning and do it every single day and just get beat to death. I mean, you know how it is sometimes on, you know, four or five foot seas, it, it'll about throw you out of the boat. You know, it's yeah. work to stand up out there and some of that. Yeah. And they, I mean, and then you watch them in the communication and the gap and like, I love gaffing and I like doing everything, but just to know, like what I've seen, just being able to spot a floater. And to get up next to that floater and then to listen to these guys, like what is, they can literally like go play by play, like Al Michaels and, and John Madden. And I'm just like, seriously. And it just starts taking place and the yeah. little fish are there. And then they're got a, a little bit bigger fish under them. And then under that fish is that. And then you're just like, oh man, there he is. There he is. There's, you know, whatever you're after. And then, I mean, there'll be times you'll have eight rods with Mahi on every one of them, you know? And I know you've experienced that where you're, it's you're, hectic, yeah. you're yeah, it's oh, like, yeah. it's a circus, man. So I and, think it's, I think 
What's that? I'm sure you've been with some of those captains that are that are the the old school football coaches that'll get on your butt. You know, oh, if you dude. miss a fish, or and I mean, I've sort of enjoyed that. You know, it's it's one of those things where you're it makes you want to learn as opposed to just going out there and taking the rock from somebody and reeling a fish in. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's almost like the strategy is so important to me of like, I respect that. Like if, if, if they get on me of like, Hey, you're in the wrong spot. Or if they tell me something and then I, and I, and I'm like caught in the moment and I'm like dazing off, those guys can't afford that. I mean, the money to put it in my mind. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, and, that's and then you, you got to be on your P's and Q's out there. You do all the time. And I think that duck hunting and the other things that you like, talk to me a little bit. I, I want to get back into the f- fish fry. I don't know if you've been watching T-Bone or Waddell or anything they've been saying, but they're catching these brim, what they call them down where y'all are from. We call them bluegills out here, yeah. but, but, um, they're, they're, they, they, they catch and release brim back into, back into Lake Crisco is what they're on this. That's what the Waddell and the bone collector guys have been doing you know they've been throwing them into lake crisco and teaching us how to you know really do a southern fish fry and the seasonings to use and i I had waddell on here the other day and um i want to get back into your style of that when you're back in alabama but um did you did you get on a cut you were on a good few days of turkey hunting with tyler did you get with tyler jordan on some turkeys i did we we uh we went down to his uh place in columbus real street farms down there and managed to eat up with birds that was a I think the first day we had seven grown gobblers come in. Uh, I think his gun barrel was crooked. He he missed on the first day there. I mean, it was a little hectic, have a lot of eyes on you, but I killed one the first day. He missed one. The next day we had one of those hunts that you couldn't have drawn up any better. Chased the birds, got in the right spot. They worked up, uh, strutting, blown up, probably 80, 100 yards from us. Solid decoys, ran to them, jumped on them shot got both of them so we doubled up the last day but it's man it's it's a different kind of hunting from where i'm at northeast alabama we still have those what they call the foothills of the appalachian mountains we have what i call mountains that really aren't compared to where y'all are but it's uh, a lot of up and down and not as much field hunting but it, it's uh i enjoy going somewhere different just seeing a different terrain and just kind of seeing how birds you know react to different things in a different environment Many turkey hunters, and and I'm not very experienced, but I've gotten to go to a lot of different states, Alabama and Mississippi being two of them. And a lot of, of very, very experienced turkey hunters, and I don't know if you've heard the same, but they say that those two states, Alabama one, Mississippi two, are the toughest turkeys to to consistently be successful on in the country. Because you go to Kansas and you, I mean, you might have a chance like every eight seconds, you know, it seems like every time you hit a call, you cut one, they're there. Yeah. But like Mississippi, I was pulling my hair out. Like they're tough. Well, have you heard that too? I- I, I, I mean, I've, I've said it. I'm definitely one of those guys say that. Now I, I may be a little partial, but you know, I say it's, it's a number of things, but it's definitely for one, you've got more agriculture, it, all those States that you've got, you know, Kansas, Iowa, you're going to have more birds just like deer or anything else. So your hunting's going to be a little easier in some of those places anyway, but the pressure is what, where I'm from, at least, you know, you go to Kansas and you might drive 10 miles and not leave somebody's property you know, on a straight road. Whereas I'm hunting, I got a 40 acre block. I'm hunting. It's got five toms on it. There's somebody calling those birds from every corner of that 40 acres, you know? So you, you get a little more pressure where I'm at and, you know, it just not having the big chunks of land, big blocks of land is, is, is a tough thing. You know, and if you can ever get that, you, you'll have a lot more success. Yeah. And I, I think that that's what I was, I would have, accredited to was the pressure because it's almost a religion down there. Like duck hunting is in Arkansas. 
and I, and I don't ever take anything away from of religion, but turkey hunting is a, a second religion in the South. It truly is. Like there's more turkey hunters in the country than there are duck hunters. I think that 90% of the turkey hunters are in those states of like maybe maybe Western Arkansas East and then upwards a little bit into like Tennessee. And there's a lot of turkey hunters in the country, but I'm telling you, you come out here, California's got some, but you go to places like Wyoming, Montana and Washington and Oregon, there's a handful of turkey hunters compared to where y'all live. And and when yeah, people, well, you see the same thing with uh, deer hunting though. I mean, you go to, go to Illinois when we used to go up around Rand Lake and, and hunt when I was, when I was growing up and you'd see during uh, November 12th through the 25th, You'd see all kind of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida tags, Tennessee tags. I mean, that's, you know, I think when you're seeing those turkeys every day, you're seeing those flocks of 50 gobblers out there in the field every day. It doesn't seem as difficult to you as it is where we're from, you know. So I think that's a big part of it is, you know, we'd go up there and hunt guys' properties and just lose our mind at the deer they had up in Illinois. And they see them every day riding on a tractor. You know, they could kill any of them they want to, shoot them out of a tractor if they wanted to. So it's it's a little different for us because we just don't not used to seeing those numbers of deer size and same with turkeys. Yeah, and I think that you know, I think that it becomes almost like this spectacle of that you want to challenge yourself as a turkey hunter because I, you know, and I'm not taking anything away from going to Kansas and getting a Rio or going to California, but I, I, it's nothing for me. I could send you pictures right now, text you a picture of. 40 gobblers on one trail camera picture together, like 40 of them, no exaggeration. And, and then when you go, when I'm in Mississippi, you'd be damned if you freaking like see two of them out in the open. It's almost like when you, when you go to Canada and Canada's known, Saskatchewan's known for huge whitetail, right? Well, you very rarely ever see one when you're just driving around the road, you'll see a coyote, you'll see snow geese and Canada's and ducks going into a, a pea field. It's very rare to see a big monster whitetail. And, and I think that that's why they bait them because they got to get them out of that, out of that brush and that bush country. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like that, that whole mindset when I'm down there, it's like when I was killing them consistently in Kansas or California, I'm like, I got to go try this and where I hear it's the toughest. And then I get there and I'm just like, Dude, I'm getting smoked. Nowhere near good enough. And Waddell and those guys that consistently do it, he'll tell you. Like he lives in Georgia, he'll say Alabama turkeys are the toughest there are. And and you know, and he turkey hunts a lot, and he's seen a lot of turkeys hit the dirt in his life. So I think it's one of those things in my my psyche. I'm like, if I'm gonna go, at, if I want to challenge myself as a duck hunter, I want to go somewhere where where it might not be as easy as easy to do it. Like cornfield hunting them in North Dakota. I like doing right. that maybe twice a year to get somebody new on it and see the power of it, of what the majesty of mallard ducks can do on a blue sky with a wind and some chill in the air to come into a mojo or eight mojos in a cornfield. Like that's cool. But if you really want to challenge yourself, you like get in a boat and figure out how to navigate the Missouri river, the Mississippi river and get under them and stay under them consistently. There's a lot of different levels, you know, just like in music or athletics in hunting. I'm not, it's not, it doesn't have to be competitive, but it's like a self challenge to me. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. And I, and I've always said that I think that my, cause I, I wasn't a big hunter early on. I played three sports in high school and my dad didn't hunt. My dad worked construction, just didn't care anything about, about anything but work, really. And uh, I, I picked it up when I was late in high school, getting into college. And I think that my competitiveness in sports is kind of what started me into that. You know, is that something that, well, first, it's something you can get better at. You know, shooting, bow hunting was a big draw for me, you know. And uh, that part of it, you can obviously, you know, being you can own a skill a little bit. But then, you know, the competitiveness with your buddies of going out, how'd y'all do, this, that, and other. So, 
there's definitely a competitive part in it that, that, that drove me into liking the hunting part. But, you know, duck hunting, I, I bought a place in uh, Truman, Arkansas. It's a trailer. It's, uh, it's on a ditch that goes to the St. Francis River. And it's just, uh, you know, flooded Cypress Lake. It's just sunken land out there. And I've got, you know, with playing music, I've been able to get a lot of opportunities to go in a lot of nice places. A lot of those hunts where you, like I said, you get a cup of coffee and you don't ever get away from a buddy heater and you're shooting ducks and they pile in on you and you have a nice breakfast and stay in a nice lodge. But I, I'm about two of those a year. Then I want to go try to find the ducks and I want to go try to chase them down. And I'm the same way with, with deer hunting. You know, I, I went with Tyler and them to Nebraska this past year, this past season. First time I'd ever been up there and it was unreal. Never sat and didn't see over a hundred deer. Just everywhere and it was still tough we were bow hunting you know i mean this is big open fields we had to really move around on them and but you know that compared to going to illinois and hunting a block of timber between this many fields and trying to figure out what those deer are doing and patterning them it's two different types of hunting you know so i i went up there and had success i killed two good deer in nebraska and then i wanted to go try to test myself a little bit you know it made me want to go down there and and uh it made me want to go hunt back home you know, and that's tough hunting in Alabama. We don't have those giants they got up there, you know. So I definitely get that part of it, the kind of pushing yourself. So as you push yourself, you know, your athleticism and your and your competitiveness, do you find as you started getting into hunting and where you're at now into hunting, do you find yourself partial to one or the other? Like when you talk to somebody like me, I would say I'll take a mallard duck hunt over a 390 bull elk any day. Except, But I love the idea of bugling in an elk in the archery season during the rut or whatever and getting them at 10 yards. But I, it's still, it would, if I see a huge elk on the mountainside, I'm like, oh, that's cool. If I see 60 mallards over here going into some woods, I'm like literally a kid at Disneyland. You know, like yeah. do you find yourself getting partial like that. I, I bounced around. I was like that with ducks for probably... 15 to 25, 26, I would walk through swamp. I would go get on Google Earth when it first came out, and I would look and find where these creeks went. Anywhere I could find a swamp, I'd go ask property owners if I could, and I'd put a kayak in and paddle over there. And, you know, I was shooting resident ducks. We might see a duck, you know, but I would go roost them. I'd go watch them, you know, and see what time they came in, try to figure out where to get the next morning, if they're going from this swamp to the other. You know, we had places where, you know, you'd walk a hundred yards and stuff. You had to pull your boot up out of the mud every step and maybe see a duck. And then I'll go to Arkansas and there's thousands of them flying all over the place. But that, that duck hunting, the seeing one cup up, if it was just landing in a pond that I was fishing in, used to just drive me nuts, man. And then, you know, it was turkey. Turkey's got me for a long time. I, I really struggled. I didn't have anybody that really showed me how to turkey hunt, which, you know, hunting where I am in Northeast Alabama, it was tough. I mean, I went, I went several years without, shooting at a turkey you know and then i went a couple years of missing them and uh i went with an old man that, that i knew hunted out there i'll never forget him taking me and i was wanting to learn from him i'd always heard he killed a lot of turkeys and he heard one gobble and he said all right you know go you go that way i'm gonna go this way and he said that turkey right there will teach you more than i ever could you know and that's kind of how i learned and, and i got fired up about that for several years and didn't do a lot of deer hunting and then i got into bow hunting and that's, you know, it, it's one of those things where I think early season, bow season, that's all I'm about. Once it gets cold enough, we start thinking about duck hunting, I get fired up about that. And as soon as it starts to get a little bit like turkey season, starts to get that smell in the air, I start riding around looking at fields. So you still do have a burning passion for ducks? 
You see, Dutch, I, I you still get it. I, I, I love it. And you know, it's it's crazy. Uh, like I said, I've been really fortunate in what I'm doing to get to hunt a lot of places I never thought I would. You know, and duck hunting, as you know, is a very expensive hobby, especially when you're doing it yourself. When you're going, and you're you're buying the decoys and, and buying the boat and the motor that you got to have and everything, blinds and everything. It's it can be a tough hobby to get into. It takes a lot of time, and to be good at it, it takes a lot of time. So, you know, being that I've gotten to go do a lot of hunting and, and go to a lot of nice places, what I enjoy about it now, probably more than anything, is like taking my dad or taking a handful of buddies and letting them get that feel of being somewhere that you would never be for any other reason. You know, that's one thing I loved about duck hunting. You get in a boat and you drive into a swamp. You know what I mean? When I bought that place in uh, Arkansas, my mom was saying, well, when am I going to get to go up there and see it? I was like, well, you don't understand. It's not like going to the beach and sitting on the porch. You're looking at a swamp. There's mosquitoes the size of birds up there. You know, you don't want to go. But I just enjoy that being out there in a place that, you know, watch the sun come up somewhere that you just would never be otherwise. And I like to share that with as many people as I can. And that's something that's special about duck hunting to me is you know, it's not like you're like, Oh, I need, I want to shoot this deer. You know, like this one's duck hunting. The more people you got in the boat, the more you can shoot, you know, and it's yeah. just something you really share a lot more than any other type of hunting. I think. Did you find it as you, yeah. I want to get into music in a minute, but I think that, you know, your I think your work ethic is what I and I don't know you as well as I think that we will get to know each other in the future. I'm glad that I got to meet you in Salt Lake City and we become buddies and I get to text you and stuff. And I'm real proud of your career. But you were given the name, the nickname Duckman. You work with Greg and you work with Halo Waterfowl, which is a great brand. Great, great message. He's a great dude. Um but you also are playing music at the same time and you were putting out EP after EP after EP, which is a lot of work. And that's like, that shows me like that work ethic. Your dad probably was a lot like my dad, Riley, that my dad always said, you're put on work on earth to work. You can have a great family and family's everything, but to work and, and provide for the family is what means something because without that struggles will occur. Right. So I think that the work ethic is what got you and obviously a lot of great talent, but do you find yourself through these hunting camps and these, and these excursions and the personalities and the, and, and, and the experiences, do you find a lot of passion in your songwriting and your vision as a musician to keep that? Because you haven't, you haven't gotten away from that. You still wear the hat. It's got a duck on it. You still are known as Duckman in a lot of your media and your press and all of that. So was that kind of like, it went to, it was going to go together or nothing kind of deal. Like you weren't, it was almost like that Aaron Lewis song to where if somebody came to you and said, Hey, you're going to have to cut your hair and, and shave your mustache and drop the camouflage and the duck on your hat. What would Riley Green said? Is that, you know, you kind of see where I'm getting at? A hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, there was conversations about that. One thing that to, to, to hit the, you hit the nail on the head with pops. It's definitely like that. He was one of those, I think his, he would brag about him picking the heavy end of something up you know, and how many pieces of plywood they could tote at one time, which is probably why I could barely walk now, but that's just, that's just how it was growing up, you know? And, uh, that definitely carries over to anything else. Just like I say, sports give you a work ethic that probably nothing else could, you know? And, uh, you know, the music thing, yeah, there was a lot of work in, in, in getting to where I'm at in my career, but it didn't feel like work for me. It was something I enjoyed doing. I could make a little money on the side doing it. I never thought I'd get to where I did, but you know, it was, uh, the hunting part, I, I didn't understand social media the way it is and how well country music and hunting go together and how a lot of my fans are hunters and outdoorsmen. So when I signed my record deal, there was some talk about, you know, when you're out in this part of the country, maybe don't bring up the, you know, that you hunt as much, or maybe don't talk so much about this or that. Not really anything where they try to change who I was, but 
you know, sort of shy away from some of those conversations for, you know, the sake it might offend somebody or they're not, you know, have the same beliefs about hunting. And, and I, I actually went back to Nashville and uh, wrote a song the next week called Ain't Like I Could Hide It with a couple of guys, you know, and that's, that's who I am. It's, it definitely, I definitely don't hate that idea of, you know, if I've got to be that guy that's a hunter and, and maybe I don't appeal to everybody in the country because of that, you know, I, I've just always enjoyed it to that point. You know, I've always enjoyed hunting enough that that's going to be a part of my life. And as far as my music career goes, you know, it's not really something that I push on anybody, but it's definitely something that I don't try to hide. Are you country to the core? Like is Riley green and where I'm going with this is like, I look at somebody like, I think you've written songs with red Akins. Um, yeah. So his son is a hunter. Thomas hunts. Thomas was like hunting with you this year. I know Thomas hunts. I've had conversations with him when he, before he blew up about banded and like, you know, duck hunting and, and all that stuff. I could tell you where we were when I had the conversations with him, but he has taken that route of, he's not going to show a bunch of that because is that because he's gone a little bit more on the, on the, on the pop side of things. And he's got to really be careful about that 18 year old girl that was raised by the family that doesn't believe in killing animals. And are you of the mindset of like, Hey, I'm country. I'm never going to have that crossover. Or is there a potential? for that crossover someday and you might have to worry about that sometime in your career uh, well certainly not going to try to answer for thomas but we have had those conversations you know and and it, it's it, it's it's sort of sad to me that that is a real thing but it is i mean where we're at today in the world is one of those where there are people that are going to be offended by that and if you believe in something that everybody didn't believe in you're gonna you're gonna lose some fans over that you know and that's that's definitely something I think Thomas struggles with to a certain extent of he is an outdoorsman. He's a, he's from Georgia. You know I mean? You know, Red as well as I do that he's one of the biggest hunters I know and loves it. I think first time I wrote with Red, we sat and talked about hunting for an hour and a half before we ever picked a guitar up. You know, and I took Thomas out hunting this year and, you know, we even talked about, you know, he's like, I post a picture of me with a deer or ducks or, or a hunt or anything. And, you know, I, it's, I, there's no negativity in anything that I, now if Thomas did that, there would be, probably a lot of flack. He probably catch a lot of flack about that, you know? So, and it is because of his, his music, his fans are a little different than mine. So to answer your question from my side of it, I don't, I think that it would be a disservice to my fans to go and change something to try to cater to somebody else. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think I, I like certain artists because I believe what they say and because I believe who they are is who I, who they really are, who I think they are. And that's kind of how I want to be. I don't want to go out and, change what I'm doing to try to get a fan that may or may not believe what I believe. You know, it's uh, me, me going out and hunting uh, is, 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 uh, is part of my life. And fortunately for me, the fan that I have seems like they probably have the same lifestyle and the same beliefs that I do in it. So I, I don't, I don't see any big change in my career going. I think it'll be a, it'll either be a short lived career or it'll, it'll be one where, you know, I've got a, a select fan that, that kind of, you know, uh, cause has some of the same beliefs I do, you know, when you when you have pops around now and you guys are out on the boat together or you're you're getting ready to to get on a duck hunt, does Dad still say stuff to Riley Green like, "Hey man, you need to work harder." Hey man, you, you don't be staying up as late. Don't drink so many beers. Get your. I mean, is 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 the mentality still there of that of the old man mentality? Because my dad, until he passed away. 
and, and, and I hate that he passed away at 54 years old because he didn't get to see a lot of what was getting ready to happen with Bandit and the foul life and, and all of that. But up until that day, he was still like when I would go to do seminar series or a speaking engagement, he's like, make sure you know that you're on your A game. And he was always coaching, always parenting. Um, I, I, I see like a different and where I'm going with this, Riley, is that I see a different humility with you. Like there's a, an opportunity for you to get real arrogant and real cocky with success. Good looking guy, tall guy, in shape guy, fans coming out of the woodwork. Number one hits, probably one of the biggest songs right now, you know, with the, with the grandpa song that means so much to so many people is your dad and your upbringing with mom and dad and your friends. Is that what you would credit to your grounded attitude of humility of, of, taking a text from a duck hunter and just talking hunting. Cause I don't really see you ever changing. I don't think that all the awards and number one hits in the world are ever going to change the way you look right now or the way you sound or the way you talk. Is that fair to say? Uh, I, I would definitely credit my upbringing for, for anything that has to do with that. I mean, my granddaddy Buford always used to tell me to keep my head on straight. That was his, every time I saw him, you know, and it was, you know, he used to take me and my cousin Jake and give us handshake competitions whenever I'd see him, whoever had the best handshake, you know, like little things like that. You don't think about as a kid, you just wanted to win, you know, but what was actually going on was he was teaching us how to, you know, go up and greet somebody and, and shake everybody's hand, not be looking at the next person in line when you go in a room and see who the most important person to talk to is, you know? So, I mean, I was taught a lot of things as a kid because of my upbringing, because of the family that I had that was right there close with me. Uh, I think the only way that success, I mean, obviously, being in the music industry and, and having the career that I do, my lifestyle is a lot different than it was when I was framing houses for a living three years ago. But I think the only way that that can really change you in a negative way is if it was something that was just handed to you. You know I mean? A lot of my success was very gradual. You know, I went from playing a Mexican restaurant in Jacksonville called Loco Mex every week for about two years to selling a thousand tickets in Birmingham. And that was enough for me. That was a successful enough career for me. And, you know, from there to have a number one song and, couple gold records and songs on the radio and you know and, and and on major tours and traveling around it's it's a lot has changed but like you said to go back I, st I still have my house at the top of the hill next to a water tank behind my grandma little jean's house and i see her working in the same garden every time i go up there my mom and pop doing the same thing me and dad built a lean-to on my barn yesterday before we left to go to the beach you know so there, there's a lot of things about my life that have changed dramatically and then there's a lot that really haven't you know so i think that that keeping my, you know, not figurative roots, but actual roots in Alabama and having that place to go back to has always helped me not only in how I, you know, carry myself, but really in my songwriting. You know, I mean, I can picture myself, and I think this has happened a lot. I can picture myself going to Nashville six years ago uh, with nothing really, you know, maybe thinking that I had some good songs. People back home told me I did. Moving into an apartment with a couple of guys, going out and playing riders rounds and playing for free living off crackers and water for two years and come back with my tail tucked from my legs. Cause there's a lot of people that can sing better than me, play better than me and have better songs than me. So, you know, it, it wasn't really that. I think that, you know, me, go, me not going up there and trying to cater towards what was working. I think a lot of people go to Nashville and do just that when they sit down and go, man, this guy's being successful. He's got a song like this. I need to write a song with this guy, or I need to write a song that sounds like that, or I need to dress this way. I didn't never do that. I didn't go to Nashville. I'd never been to Nashville until I signed a record deal. They got me a condo downtown by Losers Bar. And that's when I moved up there. So that was two years ago, you know, and I still don't stay up there much. I'd rather drive home and, and be at the house. So I think all that kind of together is, is what's 
made it easy on me to, you know, not forget where I came from, so to speak, because, you know, it's, it's not really like I've gone anywhere. I'm still hanging out in the same place. Give me one person besides grandma, mom, or dad, grandma in her garden that you would accredit for this, for this look on life. Is it a coach? Can, do you remember a certain coach that you would still go back to your alma mater and be like, man, I love you for what you instilled in me. And it can't be grandpa. It can't be grandma. It can't be anybody. Is there somebody in Riley Green's life that you would be like, man, I, I, I want to go tell that man, thank you for what he taught me. Oh, definitely. Uh, my granddaddy Buford was probably the reason I got into country music. He was a big country music fan. I wrote a song about him that I played at his funeral. And, uh, there was a line in the song that said he never could himself, but he taught me how to play. And I don't really remember what I was thinking when I wrote it, but that's kind of how it was. He didn't, he, he didn't play. He had an old Epiphone guitar in his house and he just liked it so much. I started picking it up and messing with it, you know, and we'd sit around listening to Merle Haggard. I think one of the first songs I ever played with him was Roy Acuff. You know, like I'm a, you got a 12 year old kid singing Roy Acuff, you know, that's just, that's not a normal thing. And he had such a big part in my music career before it ever really became anything. So for me to be able to have the success I've got now, I would love for him to be around and be able to shake his hand and say thank you because it's that's really been a big part of it, you know. And probably maybe your biggest song was written about this man. I mean, maybe not maybe not radio wise, but like that song is probably is that the song that means the most to you right now in your career so far? Uh, I think that song will be a hard one for me to beat in my career, you know. And it's it's uh, it's just a testament to kind of stay in who you are and, and writing about what you know and not changing anything because you know here I am I just had some success I had a number one I had a whole I had like 12 songs recorded going on an album and I wrote I wish grandpa's never died after my granddad Lennon passed away last February uh, of last year and uh you know I sat down and just kind of in a way of dealing with that I wrote this song didn't think anything would really come from it I thought fans might like it didn't think it'd be on my record didn't think it'd be a single Played it at a show in Georgia. Somebody videoed it, put it on YouTube. We got a million and something views. And then next thing you know, it's my single. And, you know, it's, it, it didn't do as well at radio as those girl did, but people sang that song to me. It shows before we even recorded it and they scream it. It shows now, you know, and it's, I've never had so many stories. People come and tell me this song, this line means this, you know, it's, it's, I wish I could write a song like that every year, you know, cause it, whether it goes number one on the radio, you know, it, it means more to people than anything I put out. Yeah, that's that's what I saw. And the first time I heard it, I was just I was hooked on it right away. And I, I think that I think that a song like that is a testament to your upbringing as far as. I think a lot of I think a lot of country music and you touched on it a little bit with the writer rounds and the way that a lot of songs are written, I think, in a lot of publishing houses. I, I, I talk on it a lot about. I don't know if the singers, a lot of the times that were singing a lot of the songs that were hitting the last 10 years, even were like that lived that part of that song. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I just have this feeling that a lot of songs that were big hits were being sung by an artist that might not necessarily have wrote the song at one time or lived that song at one time. And I think when you hear a song like Grandpa's, I Wish Grandpa's Never Died, is like you had to have lived through that. You had to be there to get the words that you were putting on paper. And I think that well, that's when people hear a song like that. Or I, another guy that's from the same kind of part of the country that you are, Brent Cobb, who's one of my favorite songwriters. When you hear a song song about what the way that he wordsmiths you know that he's lived that song whether he was high whether he was sober what, what he's lived that song in every single one of his lyrics out front i'm like he had to have been there he had to have done that right and some country music i've 
had a disconnect in the last eight, seven, eight, ten years, whether you call it bro country, what I've had a little bit of a disconnect with a lot of country radio because I can't put myself there. And I don't think that the person singing it a lot of the times was there. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. And I know you might not be able to talk on that because it's a political deal in Nashville or music city, but that's just, that's my idea. When I hear a song like that, I'm like, Riley had to have been there. That grandpa had to touch him in so many ways mentally, you know, just like that was your, you know, that was your, you had to live that song to put on paper. I, I, I agree totally. And I mean, it, I think that it's, it's a, I think that it's a personal preference to some people in the sense of like, I like songwriters. I like songs that, in other words, you bring up Brent. I can hear a song that Brent wasn't singing and know if he wrote on it. You know, I mean, I wrote a song with Brent, me and Brent, Adam Hood and Eric Dillon sat down at the house the other day and drank a case of Miller Light, wrote a song. And I remember here, listening to it a couple of days later and going, man, that sounds like a Brent Cobb song. You know what I mean? And, and that's something that I appreciate because I feel like you get to know an artist and you get to know it's not just, man, I like this song. It's I like this artist. And I think that's what helped. That's a career. That's what builds your career. What builds you those people that maybe you don't have 10 number ones, but people come to your shows because they're a fan of an artist. You know, and that's something that you're not going to get with guys who don't write songs. And it's nothing against guys that are, I mean, George Strait's made a heck of a career singing songs that other people wrote. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some of the best songs you're ever going to hear is, but to say that, you know, you're going to get a style from something that there's 20 people writing songs. I don't know. You know, and I think, I think there was a time 10, 15 years ago, whenever it was, that people didn't really care who wrote songs. I don't think that was that big of a deal. I don't think it, I think it was probably because you didn't have the, the ability to get to know an artist on a personal level like you do now to a certain extent you can get on instagram and know what kind of car they drive what color their mom's hair is you know what kind of pets they have everything else and you didn't have that years ago so for me i think that people care more about the story because they feel like they can you know they can look on right now they can get on instagram and see a picture of my grandpa wrote a song they can see a picture of my dog or my truck or whatever you know so i think there's a lot more time i think people become a fan of an artist more if they write their own songs you know and i i say that definitely about me Something I do when I hear a song on the radio, if I think it's a good song, I'll go on the internet and get on YouTube and watch a video of them singing it acoustic. I want to see them sit down and sing it and see if I believe it. You know, and or hear them tell, tell a story. That's why those songwriters nights in Nashville are so much fun to go to because you get there hear, hear a story about it. I don't, some of those songwriters aren't the best singers in the world. You know, I've never thought I was, but it means a lot coming from it. it means a lot. Look at Chris Christopherson, you know, somebody that, that tells a story and, and they mean it and you know, it's true. It, 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 you don't have to sing it any better than anybody else. Could you imagine Riley green? If there was Instagram for Waylon and David Allen Coe and Guy Clark. And, and, and when that time was going on with the songwriters that were, that really mean something to me, the Don Williams, can you imagine what would have been being shown on Instagram? I don't know if they could have shown a lot of what was going on. No, I think that you, I, I don't think no. because that was just a different, I mean, like, I don't think they could, there was a different life. No, I mean, I barely make it and I'm not near as rowdy as I used to be. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I still slip up every once in a while. It's uh no, there's no way. Man. I mean, just a, just a handful of still pictures I see of Waylon and Willie or Merle, whoever sitting around left there having a beer. Like you can just tell that was one of those nights. That's, that's enough for me. I don't it would, think I it would have been, it would have been like a Derek Jeter party, huh? No phones allowed kind of deal. Willie be like, check them at the door kind of deal. Exactly. Yeah. That, that would have definitely had to been a rule. 
Which brings up another point about country music today, which I would say is probably the biggest selling format of music for live music. And I know that Guns N' Roses, I love rock. I could talk about rock and roll all day. I know that hip hop's got its place. I love good hip hop. I like talent. I really respect talent. But I think that country music just has this unreal following and revenue base of live shows and, and a lot of support behind it. I think a lot of rock musicians that don't make it in rock and a couple that haven't made it in rap have become country music artists. But... I, it, it drives me, it, it, it drives another point of the phone and the Instagram and the, and the, 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 the losing touch in my opinion. And I'm guilty of this trying to grow a brand and I go hang out with a Riley green. Of course, I'm going to get a shot of the concert. Be like, Hey, Duckman's up on stage, da, 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 da. But man, it is amazing to see how many people watch a Riley green concert or a good show through a four inch screen instead of really being there. And I'm like, I promise you that you're only going to watch that video maybe one other time. And you might show somebody that you were there, but you're really losing the connection because back when a Willie concert would take place or a, a Waylon show. And I remember going to Travis Tritt shows and Doug Supernaw shows or Sammy Kershaw, who's a freaking God to me in country music. There was no such thing as a flip phone even back then. Right? So the chance, of you having that up there were slim and none. You might get a picture in a, you know, a Polaroid at the meet and greet or something. And it was more of a connection. Like the concerts are badass today, but when I go, I really want to discipline myself to have that connection. And I think even though the crowd is engaged and they can see your mom's color hair and your grandpa and your dog and all that, that when they're there and they actually have a chance to really connect with a Riley Green, put the phone down for at least 99% of the show and let him tell you a story in all of these three and a half minute songs. And don't worry about showing anybody. Let them go to the next concert if they really want to. But social media is also taking the connection out of that, in my opinion. I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I, for me to say that I'd be where I was at in my career without it, I, I think I'd be lying. I mean, there, there's look at look at I wish Grandpa's never died. Somebody videoed that on their phone at my show, just written the song. First time I ever played it, gets a million views in a week. I go to my label and say, "Hey, we might need to cut this, record it, gold record." So, I mean, you know, maybe it would have happened either way. But I mean, people found out. People were singing my songs in places I'd never been because they found them online. You know, and this was before I had a song on the radio pushing me. So it's, it's helped me a tremendous amount in my career. But to your point, yeah, you know, I, I think more so than recording that they were there, I think it's a, we got to tell everybody I was here. You know, I've got to get a picture with so-and-so. So they believe that I met so-and-so and my Instagram is going to have this on it and get more likes because I was at this show. It's yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot about it. I wish that you know, at times you could kind of, you know, just put the phone down and enjoy the moment. But I, I think I'm probably as guilty as anybody of it. Yeah. And I think that is, and I think that it's, it's just a weird disconnect because if you look at it from, it might be an 18 year old girl that records that song and puts it on there and she might, you know, like start this whole onslaught of, uh, of the snowball effect of, of a song like grandpa's. And it's, it's, it's a double edged sword because when you're watching it and you're filming it, you're not really getting the gist of what's there. So it is, it's kind of like, you got to, you want to, you want to have some evidence, I guess. It's like, well, did you really shoot a 180? Well, let me see the picture. I got to see the video. Make sure that you shot it. Do you have a TV show that you can prove it? You remember when hunting was, when, when I grew up hunting, man, it was just about, that, those were the days where you'd probably pin the, you know, rope the deer down on your hood of your truck and drive out of there and be all fired up about it. There was no social media. There was no, there was just a picture album at mom's house. And now it's almost like you have to have that pile pick or 18 greenheads with a band on their leg hanging from a tree in Arkansas to prove that you were there and experienced it when yep. 
There are still a lot of guys though that are so authentic that don't do that. They, they, they live it every day. They, they'll kill more ducks than me. They're so much better on a duck call and so much better at a duck hunt than I'll ever dream of being. And I just sit there as a sponge and like soak it up. And then I go, wait a minute. I'm the guy that is going out there and I'm taking a video of this Benelli. Instead of enjoying the hunt, I'm consistently trying to build content so Benelli's happy and Federal's happy and Tyler Jordan's happy and Realtree's happy. And you know what I mean? It's like a double-edged sword. You cannot live it and then say, well, don't do it, you know? I know some of those guys you're talking about too, you know, that that, that have, have seen those skies just covered up with them and gone out there and killed I don't know how many limits and just you know, don't care. They, they don't tell us all about it. They go do it for the enjoyment of it. And, you know, luckily for me and you, we were around when that was how it was, you know, before the cell phones. I mean, I can remember the first year I ever shot. I didn't have a cell phone to take a picture of it. We didn't take a picture of it. You know, I've got it mounted. Uh, but, you know, there's probably people now that care more about getting a picture of the deer than getting a mount of it. You know what I mean? And that's, I like I said, there, there's a lot of positives to having it, but, you know, the, 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 the having to document everything, I get it. I'm as guilty as anybody because you know there there is a business aspect to it, you know. But I think I like that's why I enjoy taking my dad hunting so much. I carried him to uh, Texas last year, deer hunting, killed his first deer. Uh, took him to Mississippi last year, and he killed a nice deer over there. And it was me and him and his brother. Uh, obviously, neither one of them are social media guys. Uh, his brother shot at the deer long ways off i was sitting in the stand with him barely nicked it i didn't even draw blood hardly and my dad ended up killing that same deer on the last day and i was sitting in the stand where i could see it all go down walked over at the same time as he picked the deer up you know fired up and like i said he's not a not a big hunter but still gets that same feeling you know i mean which that was fun for me to watch it's like it could have been my son doing it you know uh and that was all it took. It, I could, I was getting ready for the photo shoot that we were going to have to go do, you know, like it was me or one of our buddies. Like, okay, man, we got to go get the right spot. Blah, blah. And he was like, well, why? He's like, look at this thing, you know? Good. And so I, I can still take myself back to that spot, you know, getting around people like that, that really, you know, don't know any better, I guess, you know? So like I said, I'm fortunate that I grew up in a time when that was the case, at least for part of my life. I think those days are probably over now. And it's, you know, you, you gotta, you, you gotta get your, your, you got to use the positive of social media to your advantage now. And I get that totally, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, with what, what we do with the cameras and, and, you know, as opposed to going on a buddy hunt to where I might be able to have a Copenhagen here and I might be able to say a cuss word here if I need it. And then the cameras are always with me. And then it's almost like the, the fear of missing out. Like, well, I ain't going to bring the cameras today. And then something happens and you're like, dang it. If I would have documented that, I could have went to this sponsor with it. We could have just built more creativity and, and got a longer deal. And so it's almost like when, when do you turn it off? Is there a fine balance that you can, can you do it? Do you, I know you still love grabbing a guitar and sitting around a campfire. That's that's what being a musician's all about. That's what country music was built on is singing around a campfire. And you don't need a camera crew to document that, the times and the experiences that are happening right there. And I wish a lot of times if I went to Canada, I didn't have to have three cameras going off. And then my mentality is like, wait, the hunt's over. There's a cafe right down the street that's got the best food in the country as far as food goes in Canada, which I have a we could that's a whole other conversation. But 
it's another hour and a half of work, Riley, of setups and B-roll and dog retrieves and drone flying. And, and I literally, people like, I want to, I want to be on the foul life. And then they come and they're on the foul life. And then they call me and go, I never want to be on the foul life again. Cause yeah. it's like, it like takes it all of that out of like putting all the it stuff takes, back. It takes a lot of joy out of it. Yeah, it, it does because the work is, but you got to do it. You have to do it because if you don't, then I don't get the, you know, we don't get enough. Uh, enough stuff for banded to put in a catalog or on a website, or we don't get enough shots of a Benelli for them to use on their platforms. And that's what we're, that's how we make our living. That's what we get paid to do is create content and TV of a hunt. I think a trick is uh, for me is, is to balance it a little bit. You know I mean? You, you look at what you're doing. It's a business. You know I mean? There's, there's a lot of what you do that is a hundred percent of business. You, and it, it, it makes money. That's, that's, that's how you make a living. You know what? Social media is a part of that tool. It's no different than, than with my music, you know. To say that it's not enjoyable, it would be a lie. I mean, there's a lot I enjoy about getting up on stage and singing, but there's a lot of it that, that sucks, you know. So to say that, you you know, you've got to go do these hunts and you've got to go, you know, document this and get this footage and get this B-roll. I just think that if you can take that time to have a couple of hunts that are for you, you know, and that's that's what I've managed to do the last couple of years, and that's done a lot for me because I've gone, I mean – I love hunting with Tyler and them. I could go some places I wouldn't get to go otherwise. You know, it's 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 a great time. They're great folks. But man, I mean, I was up there in a in a redneck blind bow hunt, which I don't like to hunt in blinds bow hunting. I like to get in the tree. You know, not there's a lot of trees in Nebraska anyway. But where we were, you know, I'm hunting a blind. I got a guy with me, camera guy, and I got a, a deer that we we're trying to hunt called Splits. I think Culpepper ended up killing him. It, you know, eight or ten steps, and I'm drawn on him. The camera guy can't get on him because there's a blind spot in the blind. You know. And, and I, luckily I know what they're trying to accomplish. When I'm up there. They don't take me because I'm fun to hang out with. They take me because they're trying to get a show out of it. So I don't even shoot a deer and not have a story with it. So don't shoot the deer, a big deer that Tyler ended up killing. They call it big eight, giant acorn, heavy, uh, 15 yards. I can see it. Perfect. Drawn on him. Not enough camera light, you know? And I mean, it's, that's enough to get you frustrated a little bit, especially when you hunt down in Alabama, we got deer like this that everybody shoots. So, you know that kind of stuff is aggravating, and, and there's there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, that makes it feel like work when you're doing those filming hunts. And I know that from what little bit I do, I know you uh, ten times more than me. But I think if you can balance that and go in and say, All right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take these two old boys that I used to hunt with, or my dad, or my brother, or son, whatever it is, and say, you know, I'm I'm going to go out here and hunt this spot just because it's kind of a special place to me. And and, and you know, were we kill anything or not? Some of my best hunts we didn't have any luck. You know, and a great example. I got a guy that I've hunted with up in around Princeton, Kentucky for years. His name's Kurt. And he, uh, I remember going up there and he's a big music fan and he, he always took care of me. He always let me hunt his place, put me in the good stand, you know, and really wanted me. You tell when you go hunt with somebody that wants to put you somewhere and somebody that wants to put you somewhere where you're going to have good luck. You know, they want you to have a good time. And he was that guy. And, uh, I'll never forget. He took me up there and I, I can't remember what he called it, but he had a stand that was up past a beautiful green field, you know, but he just just walk up that trail. I'm not going to drive you up there. Walk up that trail, get up the top of the hill. It's going to be on the left. It's an old stand, but I've only hunted it like three times in the last 10 years. I hunted it when my dad died, like that kind of thing, you know? And uh, I went up there and hunted it. It was the most uncomfortable sit. I mean, like the tree could have fell over while I was in, you know, and it's like a miserable stand. You can tell it was like grown into the tree, but that was just a special place. I mean, I enjoyed the heck out of it, man, because it's like you just felt like you're going to see some, some deer that nobody had ever seen before, you know? Uh, there's just stuff like that. I think if you can balance that work part of it, hunting industry with, man, let's go out here and really get away. Cause I probably enjoy hunting now 
for a completely different reason than I did before. And that's, man, I get to get out in the woods and get away from everybody for a little while, forget about everything that's going on and traveling 300 days a year and say, man, you know, there's not a whole lot that can bother me when I'm sitting in a tree or in a blind or, you know, listening to a bird gobble on the roost or something. So that's, there's a lot about it that, that I still get that getaway from. Do you, part of that getaway, do you, are you a wild game eater? I know we talked, we start, we're going to get back to the fish fry before we get off today, but are you a wild game connoisseur? Are you a backyard aficionado? Do you like to show off your skills of getting some guy or a girl to like get that look on their face? Like, is this really duck? Am I really eating a wild animal here? Do you love the wild game aspect of cuisine? And now that, you know, your hunting career, is that a big part of it? Cause that's like the biggest part to me now is, is showing people what you can do and being a good butcher and being a good processor and being a good barbecuer is that does that part of the hunt mean a lot to you well i've always liked to cook anyway so that's always been a little bit of it you know it just just sort of that enjoyment of hey man let me let me cook this turkey that we killed today you know but i think that there's probably a little bit of a responsibility for for folks like me and you and anybody else that has somewhat of a following in hunting industry to obviously it's not our job to go and explain to somebody why there's enjoyment to hunting. You know I mean? It's one of the things you got to take somebody to, they got to be out in the blind somewhere to really experience it and understand what it is. But, you know, to say, Hey, look, you can, you can go and, and harvest your own animal and cook it, prepare it. And I mean, that's, that's an educational thing that I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of on us to go show people that, you know, cause that is a different side of hunting that people don't think about, especially I think the people that think negatively on hunting, I think they don't think about that. I don't think I think about the, you know, you're actually going out and doing what people did a hundred years ago, you know, and that's how they lived. So, you know, to say that you can go and cook something for somebody and say, Oh man, this isn't half bad. You know, I think that's, uh, not only do I enjoy it from a, you know, me kind of hosting standpoint, but I think it's a, it's a positive thing on the whole hunting industry. That's awesome to hear. And I might be hitting you up because, um, I'm getting ready to release a cookbook called the provider. It's going to be five editions, but, um, the first one's going to come out in the next probably three or four months and I'm going to have celebrity guest recipes in it, probably like eight or 10 of them. I might hit you up. I don't know how you can do, if you can do that. I have a couple other artists in there, but it would be, if you are, if you have a huge passion for cooking, it'd be cool to see Riley Green throw down in the, in the backyard or on the Traeger or on, in the kitchen or whatever. If you're interested in that, I'd love to talk to you about yeah. that. I, it'd be cool as heck to have you in there. Um, talk to me about this. I got a question for you. I want to see how much, how, how much we have in common with our sports preference the greatest athlete of all time it was born in the state of alabama and he's my favorite athlete of all time he's like i don't know if you call him a hero but he like literally made me want to be a better football player better baseball player better track guy faster runner who is the best athlete of all time riley green bo jackson oh buddy god i was like I don't know if you got to see any of the stuff that the bone collector crew did down there at jackie bushman's at the at the squirrel classic this year Uh uh-uh I want to, I want to go to that deal so bad. And then here comes these pictures from Waddell and Nick Mutt and them. And then yeah, and he Bo, down there. he's the, he's the, he's the guest hunter on it. And they're getting selfies with Bo. And I'm just like, you have got to be, I was at spring training last year, but not that I went this year and it got canceled. I walked off the plane in Phoenix and they said, Hey, every game's canceled. I was like, wow. But last year I was down there and I got there the day after Bo had just spent nine days in the Royals camp, you know? So I, I missed him there too. But, um, where I'm going with that is like, he is like the greatest all time athlete, in my opinion. You agree? I don't think it's close. Oh man. I love hearing you say that. I, people say Dion sometimes, and there's been, you know, Jim Thorpe and some Dave Winfield discussion, but dude, Bo was on a different level in every aspect, man. Well, I, I don't, I mean, 
it's one of those things where like, I think he did so many things that were absolutely unbelievable that it got to where it almost wasn't that big a deal when he did it. And you really have to take a second and go, wait a minute. He did like, he was dominant in both those sports, you know? And I mean, I'm an Auburn fan anyway. So it was was a little, little easier for me to go that route. But man, I just, uh, that if, if I didn't already think so that 30 for 30 on it too, just solidified it. God, he's so I was just looking at my baseball card collection the other night and I was looking at the 88 Fleer stuff when he had the shoulder pads on and I have it in the studio and another st- part of the studio of the, the signed picture by him. But when you when you think about your athletic career, did you go to the next level in any of the sports that you look like you could have played college football or been a tight end or a, I mean, were you did you go play college football or baseball or anything? I, I played football at Jacksonville State University, which is in my hometown. I was. I played basketball and baseball and football in high school. I was tiny. I would probably weighed 175 pounds. Uh, and I was six, four, you know, but, uh, it's all right. Baseball player. I maybe could have went and did something junior college baseball wise, but I went to Jackson state thought of playing quarterback in my hometown. You know, we, we actually played our high school football games in Jackson state stadium for several years because we didn't have a high school stadium, you know? So it was a, it was a chance to be kind of a little hometown hero type thing for me. And, Man, I wouldn't trade the time I spent there for anything because I made friends I've got today. But that, I mean, you think you work playing football in high school or, or baseball? It's it's just playing a sport in college is a job you don't get paid for, and it, they own you. You know, I mean, it's, it probably doesn't touch anything you'd have to do in the military. But I'd say it's the closest that I've ever gotten in my life is that structure and accountability that I did not have when I was eighteen, graduated from high school. That I had a little bit of you know, by the time I was 22 or whenever I quit playing. And, you know, without me playing football at Jacksonville State, making the relationships I, I had and getting a little bit of confidence to go play in bars, that's, that's how I started playing music. You know, I mean, my career playing football probably went down as my music career went up. I was – I'd get all my buddies that I knew from football and sororities and fraternities and everything else to come out when I played, and I played every week. And they, you know, they didn't boo me or throw anything at me, so I got some type of confidence enough to go and write songs and, you know, so I definitely think that had a lot to do with my music success. You know, I, I like I said, I, I, I don't, I've still got a, a little bit of a lazy streak. I, my, my dad would probably tell you he's, he's wide open, doesn't want to do anything but work. And I don't mind sitting on my ass every once in a while. So I didn't get that gene, but uh, I definitely think that whatever work ethic I do have probably came from, from that time I spent at Jackson State. So take me through, like, was there any comparison of the letter of intent signed to go to the next level in your football career for college football? Take me through the the big machine. How does that happen? You is is it is there build up to it? Is your dad is it because I you know you get this national letter of intent signing day in college athletics, and I did it to play baseball at UNLV, and the coach is there, and you got the you got the letter of intent right there, and you got your jersey there, and the hat, and you put the hat on. You see it all the time. What? How does it work in the record business? Your the build ups there. Are you getting? Are do you have an agent that, that is um, soliciting you? Are you getting called by like college recruiters? You would if you were a college or a high school athlete. Are you getting like this record labels hitting you up and Sony's hitting you up and then Prashetta flies you in on flies in on his jet and sits down with you and your mom and dad and he's like, hey man, I'd really like you to be on our team over here at Big Machine and we had Toby Keith at one time, but we have all these artists on our on our portfolio. Is that how it is? Is it kind of comparable to getting recruited to go play college? I was recruited. 10 times more for my record label than I was to play college football. My college football recruitment was like, Hey man, why don't you come up here uh, two days? We got a spot for you. You can, you can work out as a tight end for a couple of weeks until we have a quarterback quit, you know? Uh, but I did the music thing very backwards because I had no idea what I was doing. 
I was playing, you know, in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Southeast, doing pretty well. I think around 2016, you know, I started selling, a, you know, a couple thousand tickets in Birmingham, Atlanta, Athens, you know, college towns. I was doing really well. And I think the first show, oh, a record label started calling to, I had a, a booking agent. It was kind of working as a manager for me. He was taking calls. I was trying to get a publishing deal. But I, I thought that I was a good enough songwriter that I should get paid to songwrite. I, knew, I, I thought that would be a dream for me to, to write songs. I didn't think I ever would be good enough to have a song on the radio. I didn't think I was a good enough singer to be famous. You know, I just thought that my career would be writing songs, making money, doing it. You know, I, I enjoyed that. Never felt like work to me. So I started meeting with publishing companies and got a few publishing deals offered to write. And uh, you know, obviously, if you don't have a record deal, a publishing deal is, you know, I, I don't know, 20, twenty $25,000 to, you know, for 50% of your song, because there's no guarantee it's going to get cut by anybody. Now, if you have a record deal and you write songs, your publishing deal is going to be a whole lot better than that because you can cut the songs, you know, so your publishing is worth more. So, you know, the, I didn't realize that at the time, but I was getting close to signing a publishing deal and all of a sudden record label calls, big machine. Well, then publishing deals started to come in all over the place. So I got a, a lot of publishing deals offered, took a step back, got a lawyer and started, you know, finding out how to look at this kind of stuff. I've never read a contract. I don't know what any of that stuff says, but I might be in the worst deal ever. You know, who, who knows? They look at it for me. But uh, Big Machine called. I went and met them. I met with Big Loud. I met with uh, Warner Brothers. I met with Universal. They all ended up offering me a record deal. Big Machine offered me. The first time they saw me play in Chicago, and I remember I never played in Chicago, never been there. And I thought, man, this is stupid. They're going to come to the show. Nobody's going to be there. And it was at Joe's Bar. Well, there was 600 people there. They sang every word to every song I had. Songs about Alabama and Georgia and Jacksonville. And, I mean, I, I had no idea. So I was blown away with that. Big Machine offered me a record deal that night. I didn't sign it then. Uh, a couple other labels came to some more shows. The next week in Birmingham, we sold out two nights in Iron City. It was 1,300 people. You know, I'm like, I, I was still just as blown away by the fact that people were coming to my show and knew who I was uh, because of the four different labels off me. I got a little bit of the back and forth and got to kind of sweeten the deal a little bit. I can remember sitting in the office with my lawyer and booking agent saying, well, Warner did this big machine did this. Uh, what, what else do we need? And I was like, well, I don't know. You think they'd get me a place in Nashville? He's like, hang on calls or whatever. They get me a condo in Nashville for a year. I'm like, I felt weird that I had to ask about that. You know, I didn't even know that was a thing. So they finally, I signed with big machine. You know, they, they called me, I was at the, uh, Turkey deal up there in Nashville at the Omni. When I, when I decided, I remember calling my lawyer, Greg Camp was with me. We were walking around some of the booths and I said, I'm signing with big machine. Called Scott Bruschetta. He said, come on, send me a picture of him holding a bottle of Cristal. I went over there and signed the thing. We drank some champagne. And then I drove to Alabama. I was remember that two years ago? telling my mom and dad, they were, mom was cooking several desks on the couch. And I said, so I signed a record deal with Big Machine Records, you know, huge deal, by the way, you know, if, if you don't know. And my mom goes, that's great. You want some mashed potatoes? And just keeps doing what she's doing. And my dad said, I thought you signed a record deal already with that Warner or something. I said, that was a publishing deal. That was with Warner Chapel. And he said, what's the difference? And I was like, I don't know. I, I've signed two record deals. I don't know. So, I mean, that kind of stuff, that goes back to what we were talking about. It's like, you, you can't get a big head going back to something like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I've had a lot of, a lot of uh, great fortune in my career. And, and, and it's, it's amazing that I'm at where I'm at because I never thought I would be, but 
yeah, you, you don't forget where you come from when you live, when you live in Northeast Alabama around the folks I like grew up around. Man, I love it. That's, that's just so cool that, that you, you stay grounded because and your mom and dad reacting like that. That's so key. Like that's a TV show. Like that's like something that should have been documented. Like, ah, hey, well, let's just sit down. We'll say grace and have a couple taters here. And, and <laughs> it's like, you just signed the biggest deal. I think that I was talking with, uh, I, was it two years ago when that happened with big machine? Was that in 18? It was 2018. Yeah. Cause remember you were coming to our party that night. Jamie Johnson played our deal down on at whiskey band and, um, and you and, and, uh, camp or come over camp was texting me saying, yeah, Riley's going to come by. And it must've been like, you must've got sideways because you got that call from Bruschetta and probably had to go sign that deal or drink some Crystal. It might've well, been about, cause, that, cause that was, cause that was our NWTF party. That's right. Yeah. I, I was, that was the most stressful thing I've ever been through. I mean, obviously it was great opportunities, but to think that you're about to sign a contract with somebody where basically they kind of own everything you've built up to that point for the next however many years. You know, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I knew nothing about the music industry. I was, I was trusting a lawyer that I probably had for a month or two that somebody else showed me. I mean, you just don't, you've got to really trust people that, that you're signing with one. And, you know, I'm the type of guy I go with my gut. I, I go sit down with somebody, and shake their hand. And that's what sold it for me. You know what I mean? I signed my publishing deal with Warner Chapel from going to eat breakfast with Ben Bond and Ryan Boswell sitting there going, man, I like you guys. You know, I remember Ben sat down and he brought up a song that I'd written like when I was 18 and I put it out and I'm like, you know, that's, it just shows the, the commitment. He went through and listened to everything I had, you know, and that's, so I, I based a lot of my decisions off of character that, that I thought people had. And it was just going back and forth with those, with those labels and publishers and, and, you know, they take you out to eat. You go to this, eat a steak that they massage the bull before they cook it. I mean, all this kind of crazy stuff. And, you know, I've never done anything like that. So for me to to make that big decision, I remember me and Greg being there and I'm like, I'm deciding today. It was Friday, I think, Saturday, whatever. I said, I'm deciding today. I'm, by the end of the day, I'm signing with somebody. My lawyer called me, said, they did this, this, this. And I said, okay, I'm signing with the machine. Called Scott, signed it. And I got in my truck and drove my butt home because I've been in Nashville for, you know, how many days. And the other problem was, I've never been to Nashville much. So when I went up there, my butt partied, man. I went to Losers and we stayed out all, I didn't sleep up there when I went for the first two months, you know, and I'm glad I finally grew out of that or got to where I'm too old and tired to go do it. But uh, yeah, I took tail and went home and I was, I was glad to be done with that mess for a little while. When you were in high school and you're, you're get you're, you're, you're starting to write songs and you're listening to a lot of artists. I'm sure that you listen to the fishing song. Um, I'm going to miss her and how big Brad Paisley was. Did you ever, could you ever imagine that you were going to be sitting with him on his bus and talking about country music and opening shows for him and seeing how great, cause to me, Brad Paisley, I don't know Brad, but he comes off as a very generous human being, a very uh, gentle and sweet man. I don't know him again. I'm just assuming by the way he presents himself. I'm, I know he's got a work ethic. I know he's had a hell of a career, but I can't imagine what you feel like. You probably even maybe even covered one of his songs at the time. And then to get to that point to where like people are, I remember being in Utah and watching all the people on the floor singing all of your songs and then brad came out there and i got i was lucky enough to stand at the i was with some of the traeger folks when i met you that night and we got to stand at the bar there on the stage and and watch it i'm like like riley's got to be on cloud nine i mean you're I, you were on the tour for a while by that point but was there a time in your life to where you had to pinch yourself that this shit was really happening to you yeah but I, I you couldn't you couldn't have bet me that anything like that would be going on i mean 
Brad Paisley's one of those guys that just seems so uh, so famous to me too. You know what I mean? As a kid, yeah, me going away, I'm gonna miss her. The fishing song that was one of the first ones I did to his. You know? Uh, th- there's been so many things that have, that I've accomplished over the last two years that I never thought would happen. I don't think I really had time to even dream about a lot of it, you know? So it's one of those things where a lot of it doesn't even sink in. And the Brad thing was like, you know, they tell me, you're, you know, Brad Paisley offered you to go on tour and you hear that and you kind of take it with the grand soul, like, yeah, it probably won't happen. You know? And they're like, you're going on tour, Brad Paisley. I was somewhere in the back of my head. I'm sitting there going like, yeah, I don't know. They'll probably change his mind, you know? So then when I get out there and, Brad's great. I mean, I'll tell you something that I think is 100% true. The the guys like him that you see that have had these 20-something-year careers or longer, it's not a coincidence. Those some ones will work, and they're good people. I, I, I really and truly believe that. And, and Brad's, I mean, well, look, look at him uh, getting me on stage to sing I Wish Grandpa's Never Died during his set. You know, I played a show, and that was the last song I played. I only played six songs. I played, like, 25 minutes. You know I mean? You spend two days getting somewhere and play six songs, but it was a great opportunity. And, and I got up there and grandpa's was my last song. Lightning struck somewhere. They get me off stage and he goes and puts me on the stage. Let's me sing during his set. I was walking by the green room one day and my band sitting there listening on a cell phone to somebody singing. I wish grandpa's never died. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. It's Brad Paisley singing. He did a cover of it, put it on his Instagram. Maybe he likes the song. He said he did, but you know, he's doing that to help me out. You know, he's doing it because he's, he's a good dude and he wants to see me do well. And I think that's something that's definitely special to country music as opposed to any other genres. Is you see these guys and girls that, that kind of take some of these new artists under their wing because they've been there. I mean, Brad's been where I'm at, you know. Jason Aldean taking me. He's been where I'm at. All these folks have gone through the same things. And I think they all kind of want to help each other out. And and uh, Brad's no exception to that. That was an unreal opportunity. and. It's it's one of those things where if I don't realize how big a deal it is, everybody else tells me how big a deal it is. You know, like you're on tour with Brad Paisley. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of crazy, you know. Oh, I think it's killer. And then he also would bring you back out for the the was it the Facebook? What was the big song that you would come back out and you? I'm you still three, a guy. Yeah, I'm still a guy. Like, and you would sing a whole verse on that deal. You would you would yeah. do a whole. I mean, that's a great song. And then like that kind of that kind of like incorporation or how he would take you under his wing and do that kind of stuff just shows you like he really does care about the next generation to carry the flag of country music or music as a, in general, right? So I just always got that impression or wanted to ask like, I, I, you know, in my instance, like I have pictures and I posted one. It's like the biggest picture that it, that ever took off for us on Instagram. It was from I don't know nineteen ninety. 899 i'm hunting with phil robertson i mean i used to get to go hunt with the duck commander before the duck dynasty days and way before phil was like who phil is now and willie and uh, you know i i remember when i first started duck hunting and the only dvd i would ever watch was the duckmen of louisiana and it was phil robertson and warren coco and i was like man these guys are cool man they're talking about terry bradshaw and he's just cutting these ducks and he sounds and 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 no way did i ever think like i'd ever be like sitting at a, at a signing with the Robertsons or being in Gonzales, Louisiana to Cabela's opening and being with Willie and Phil. And then when articles are printed about me or bandit or whatever, they would call me and I'd be like, man, it's like, I used to watch these guys. They were like, I, you could go out still to some of my shops and see their posters all over. Right. And Phil would sign it. The, the one poster was I'm a duckaholic and it was Phil's head with ducks in it and stuff. And it, so like I, I pinched myself like, man, I get to hunt with Fred Zink. I'm on Fred Zink's DVD or I get to, I get to meet Will Primos today. Are you serious? I get to meet Eddie Salter. Like no way. Michael Waddell's coming on my podcast. Jim Shockey's. I'm like, 
man, I got to shake myself. Right. And then you meet them and you're just like, man, what good dudes. And they've had a long career because they, they're, you know, they're, they, they do what they say they're going to do. And they're good ambassadors of the, of the, of the heritage of the hunter. And, you know, like Waddell, he's got a career of, of country music history with folks on his show from, from Blake to, to Rhett. And you could, you can go on and on, but that, that I just think that like, there's a cool correlation there of you pinching yourself because your heroes are now bringing you up on stage. And then I'm pinching myself because I'm like, man, I get to be with Fred Zink today. And it's a completely different level of celebrity. I get that. But in my world, Phil Robertson was the Brad Paisley or the George Strait. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're telling me the same thing. I mean, those guys are still a big deal to me too. So it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. And I'm sure you can agree how quickly you can fall into you know, I mean, they're genuine folks. That's the thing about it is how quick you can go, oh, man, like Brad Page, you think go sit down with him and go, oh, I feel like you sitting on this dude for years, you know what I mean? It's just, it's it's all about character and, and the type of people they are. And, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know that I, that I if I thought famous people were different than me or what, but they're they're just regular folks, man. And it's, like I said, I think that I was really happy to see that. You always hear those questions of like, man, who have you met that was famous that was just a jerk or something like that? I don't really have any stories like that. I mean, Everybody that I've met has uh, is, is really, really been great to me. And, and it's, uh, you know, it just, it, it makes you glad to be in that genre. And, and, and also it makes you appreciate the success and, and, and all the help on the way. It kind of makes you want to pay it forward to the next bunch coming up. That's awesome, man. I appreciate your time. I'd like to do this again and even get more into some of the songs and maybe even hear about this fishing trip you're getting. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty envious, envious that you're getting to go do it. So give me, if you do get lucky today, What's the batter? What's the spice? What's the seasoning? What's the, what kind of oil do you use? You got to give me like the Riley green fish fry. Do you, are there hush puppies involved? Um, you know, Drew Keith, you know, we share a common friend in Drew Keith at honey break. That dude sends me videos at least once a week there. I want to like punch him through the phone because it's like the best food in the world. He's doing a crawfish boil here and then he's got these sausages going on and then he's got Miss Shelly's squirrel. Like I'm sure you got to hang with Miss Shelly down there and her squirrel recipes going in my cookbook and I got to sit there and film it with her and eat it with her. And I'm just like so envious of the food. Like give me an idea of what, uh, of what your fish fry is. Well, I've all, I will tell you that I've got a traker. I had it for, I don't know, probably four months, never turned it on. I was just in and out, never, never home, you know, never had a chance. And with this break, I've gotten to, man, that thing is awesome. I mean, just, just turn something on and go with it, you know, and uh, I've gotten into cooking stuff that I, I really didn't even know I could. So I'm, I'm in the uh, experimenting stage right now. You know, when I was growing up, it was my dad and my uncle Ty, my granddad Linden was a really good cook. And he, him and my grandmother Nancy both passed away last year. So my sister, when my granddaddy Buford passed away, made this thing. He he wrote poems all the time, drew pictures, kind of, never wrote songs, but I think he would have been a good songwriter. Real witty, good with words. She made this thing called the Book of Thoughts, and it was all of his little stuff. She'd screen printed into this book, and it's I mean it's one of my favorite things I've got, and it's it's awesome, you know. And just you can always go back and see what he was thinking at those times. And I I want to do something like that with some of my grandmothers and granddaddies recipes because he cooked crappie and i mean it's just i would put that up against anything in the world when he cooked that but i'm gonna have to go through we're going through their house now and see if i can find some recipes and something and, and try some things out but i like i said i i'm a tony Satchery's guy man you can't oh, go wrong with too. that i throw that on anything 
Yeah, I'm with you. And I just had a conversation with that, uh, with with the same guys down there in Georgia, Waddell's, and they use that and they slap your mama, but they all love Tony's. And um, I just I just think that the the whole social aspect of a fish fry is so oh, awesome, yeah. man. When I when I pull up on when on on Drew's porch and I'm in that part of Louisiana and I get to experience that, I'm just like, man, this is life. And we don't have we out west. You do have the barbecues, but not like barbecue in Texas or Kansas city or Memphis or the Carolinas or the big barbecue place. You don't have crawfish boils out here because there's no farms. You can overnight them from Johnny seafood in Louisiana. And I've done that on occasion, but you can't just go out and get a hundred pounds of fresh, you know, mud bugs and throw down with corn on the cob and artichoke hearts and the sausages and all that. So there's just a lot of that part of that world in the country that I really, I've always told Leith and some of my buddies in Nashville, like I'm the adopted son of the South. I got to come down here on a whim of setting up a booth for a, uh, uh, a potential duck hunting show. Uh, one, uh, our shotgun right sponsor at the time brought me into their booth at NWTF. And after that, the show started to grow. So I'm like, I'm going to get my own booth at NWTF. And then we had a booth and it just kept getting bigger. And then more people would come to check us out. And then, you know, like John Party would come and sing a song. And then Leith Lofton would sing a song. And then Drake White would come by and sing a song. And so it just started, I started seeing all this cool correlation. And then it would be a bonfire at Leith's property. And it would be, we'd be cooking redfish that somebody brought up from Louisiana. We'd be cooking this. And Drew would bring a bottle of whiskey. And we would, and then I was like, this is what life is meant. This is the hunting, the music, the culture, the camaraderie, the good people that you get to meet. I'm so thankful that, you know, we built Bandit on the message of it is the hunting is the common denominator that brings all of these people together. You sell out arenas, you sell out thousands of tickets at a time. I, I, I have a chance to be in duck camp with Riley Green. I've been in, in duck camp with Zach Brown. I used to go to Zach Brown concerts, 15,000 people in there singing chicken fried. And now I get to call him a friend because of a mallard duck. And I will never, ever take that for granted, man. I will never, I, I lost both my grandpas before I was, you know, before I was 10 years old. I didn't know what it was like to grow up with a grandpa and have that influence. Then I lost my dad when he was, I was only 30. He was 54, which, um, I'm not, this isn't a pity party. I'm just saying that I have found the smallest things about learning about my grandpa or going through their house and finding a picture about when my dad was a kid. And I still find like, like wearing one of my dad's old jackets and bringing that part of my life back is like, man, this is cool. I'm going to do this because pops did it. And then all of a sudden it's cool to wear a Merle Haggard, George Dickel jacket that my dad got at a Merle Haggard concert in the eighties. And now I'm sporting it. And I just think that hunting and music and this life and what you're living is so special. And it's the coolest way to live. I, I wanted to be a major league baseball player and now i get to i get to have george brett my hero growing up like the best royal of all time he's on my podcast and i get to stay at his house and cook on a traeger with him and that's not a a name drop i'm just saying because of hunting and this mallard duck and me going i really love mallard ducks and so do all these other people and now we can all have conversations and that's the coolest part of a fish fry and a and a and a, a riley green concert when i'm watching you sing i'm like dude that's a duck man that dude's a duck hunter and that to me is the coolest part of our life that we get to share that common bond of being a hunter i just it's bad badass man yeah it's i mean country music and and hunting especially i think are two things that are very rude in tradition you know and it's it's just like I, we talked about those guys that that, that go out and hunt and, and and don't document it they don't don't care they've done it you know there's an old man named sylvester used to ride by that trailer i had in arkansas every day he would get our ducks we didn't take them all he'd come out so you're gonna eat all them ducks he, you know we'd give him a few of them I remember him coming by and saying, yeah, I grew up in that house right over there. And this is a pile of sticks, you know, with my 12 brothers and sisters, or whatever. He said, I was guiding duck hunts when I was 11 years old. You know what I mean? He's just, 
it just it's a way of life for them, you know. And I think that's something that where, like you talk about your dad or grandparents, maybe you didn't get to spend as much time with is, you know, there's something about, man, they like to do this. If I went and found something in my granddaddy's room and, and he had a hobby that I didn't know of, I'd want to go try it. You know, I started picking up golf with my granddaddy Lennon died because we used to golf together. I've got his boat right now. I went up the center below the below the dam, and me and him used to go catch the mess out of bass up there. And I, you know, it just, I went up there and I didn't catch a stinking fish. I fished what I thought were some of his spots, but he knows where every stack of rocks and pile of sticks is under the river up there. I went up there and tried it, but man, just being in his boat and going out and using some of his lures and going through his tackle box, you know, and seeing where he used to keep his Chattanooga chew up there in the top. When I used to sneak one all the time when I was a kid, you know, I went and bought some Chattanooga chew at the store and dipped some while I was up. I mean, there's just a lot of tradition in it that I think you don't get if you don't experience that type of stuff. If you don't, you know, it, it don't necessarily got to be hunting, but that's where it is for me. It's, it's going out and hunting and, and, and sharing that with pop or taking my nieces and nephews and hopefully my kids one day. And, and that's something you can pass down and country music's definitely got that in it. So I think that that correlation to say, that's how we'll get together at the lodge sit around a fire, drink a little bit, play a few songs and cook out is, you know, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. That's something that I'll never turn down. I love it. You got a girlfriend? No. no. All right. Well, that's going to be the next podcast. Cause we're going to talk about how hard that's going to be because it's going to, there's a lot of stuff that's like readily available when you get to a certain level and in, in, in different aspects of life. And I want to see what your mindset is on that. It's going to have to be a, a special person that does something that, that would make you want to go down that route of commitment, marriage, kids. Like that, that's a big part of, of celebrity and, and, and being who you are and where you're at right now. And I, and I hope that it can, I know it's going to continue to grow. I'm proud of it. I want to get in. I want to talk to you again though, in the, in, in the, in the weeks to come about this time in our country and, and how do you stay relevant as Riley Green? How has social media and the music platforms been able to help you because you're not touring you're losing you lot you're losing a, a revenue base there um is is are people going to forget about riley green when all of a sudden the president says hey y'all can go again are we going to have confidence in our societies and communities to go to a riley green concert and be elbow to elbow like we were six months ago how long is it going to take to get back to that confidence and is there going to be a trickle down of you know so i don't know is there some fright in you i know that you're living a great life but has this changed the way that you, you know, like, are we going to have to like battle back to get to that day? We can go back and be elbow to elbow singing grandpas and never die. And you know what I'm saying? I want to have that talk with you because I assume that there are some talks going on of like, Hey, you know, wh when is this going to happen? Are all of my shows canceled for 2020? Or am I going to get to go on the road in spring of 2021? There's a lot of unknowns right now from what I'm learning in country music and athletics and everything that we're doing. Are we going to have a duck season? If you read yesterday, the prime minister of Canada outlawed 12 gauges and 10 gauges in the Canada. And I'm like, what? I've been going to Canada since 2000 with a 12 gauge. And you're going to tell me I can't bring it in. That's what they're trying to do. There's a lot of uncertainty in hunting country music because of what just happened. So I want to get into some of that with you. I know you got to get on the boat, man, but I'm being serious about this, right? I'd like to do this again. And I would really, if you do find a recipe from grandma or grandpa and you would want it in the book, I would love to have that as your recipe, Riley Green's grandma's biscuits or whatever it is. I would love, I'd be honored to put that into the provider um, and, and, and be able to show case it because i think that's a cool ass story man so let me know if that's a if you do run run by one of them deal i'll, I'll dig something up that'd be awesome i'm gonna i'll text you maybe we can get on another another one of these in a couple weeks see where you're at and see if there's any inspiration going on for new songs and, and what's going on is that cool yeah anytime and i didn't figure out how to work this zoom deal now so you can holler at me we'll do it again 
Oh, I can't wait, man. Congratulations on all your success. I'm proud to know you. I hope that we get to become better friends and uh, tell Greg Hood I said what's up and uh, to ship me one of them Halo hats. Will do, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. That's been Riley Green. Check him out. Hey, what is the Instagram? At Riley Green Music or is it just at Riley Green? Duckman? It's at Riley Duckman. Duckman. Riley Duckman. You got to always remember this man is the Duckman. It's badass to have him as a voice of what we love to do. This life ain't for everybody. Tom, hit that button. I don't know if we're allowed to play a Riley Green song on this. It's something that I would have to talk to you about after with the publishing and everything. I don't know. Can we go out with a Riley Green tune? I would do it. I know a guy, man. I can get y'all one. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna, if they which say one, anything, just tell them I said it's okay. Which one can I go out with? Because that's one I'm going to go out with. Name one. Uh, I can, name one see. you want to go out with after our conversation today. After our conversation? What about different around here? Love it. All right. I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell the guys that we can. Riley Green, you heard it right here. We said it. Tom, hit that button. Different around here. Riley Green. I love it, brother. Appreciate you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, bud. See you, man. Thank you. That's been Riley Green. What a great dude. What a great voice of what we got going on here at the podcast, the TV shows. Y'all check him out. Riley Duckman on Instagram. Check out all of his music and we will have him on again. Jack Daniels, thank you so much for supporting us and keeping us going through this pandemic. Enjoy it responsibly in moderation. Never allow any underage drinking. We're so humbled to be part of the Jack Daniels family. Lynchburg, Tennessee. Tom, go ahead and hit that button. Thank y'all so much. This is Riley Green, Different Round Here. Peace is at the end of a long day. Freeze how you feel, not what you pay. Simple's how we live. Thanks is what we get. Roots in the grounds while we 